Greetings, everybody. This is episode one of my official tribute to Leo Panich. We're going to be talking about his life, work, and legacy with Steve Marr, who was, like me, one of Leo's students. And unlike me, uh, Steve was a incredibly close collaborator with Leo. So we're going to be talking about Panich's work, what his legacy and his life meant to the left, and how we might model our approach to left and socialist politics after his own. As always, this program is free to listen to, but it's not free to make. So if you think that the socialist media ecosystem needs to continue to thrive, going well into the Biden administration and beyond, I encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at a level at which you are comfortable. My patrons enable this project to continue. I know it's a crowded and somewhat bloated podcast system that we are in right now. Uh, DPS has been around for four years, and we hope to be around for four more years and, and thereafter. Uh, but we need your help in order to be able to make that a reality. So if you listen to DPS with any regularity and you think these politics are unique and important and special in the world, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and make a contribution today. All right. Enjoy the episode. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me today is a repeat guest to the program. Very pleased to have him. Joining us today is uh, Steve Marr. He is a postdoctoral fellow at Ontario Tech. He's also the assistant editor at the Socialist Register, and he is a uh, co-author of the new edition of the Socialist Challenge today, co-author, of course, with past guests of this program, Sam Gendon and the late Leo Panich. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Adam. Good to be here. Now, you've been on the program a couple of times, once in my really, uh, at this point now, kind of semi-legendary state theory series. Not legendary <laughs> for anything that I did, but legendary for people that I had on. Because, uh, you know, Leo Panich, of course, was the leadoff batter there, I believe. And I had, you know, you on. I had uh, Raphael Kachaturian. had a number of other people who were, have kind of gone on to comprise, like, the new generation of serious socialist thinkers about, you know, about theories of, around theories of the state. And mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's uh, that was a, a real legend, legendary uh, a series that you participated in there, even though it was only 2017. That, that now is light years ago. And <laughs> the way time is moving, you know, ever it, it, it ever faster clips uh, had you on a couple about last year to talk about uh, Warren versus Sanders and some of the differences in the policy prescriptions and finance and all the rest of it. What prompts having you on the program today is a much more somber much more somber event, of course, everybody will know by now that um, our mentor, um, Leo Panich, uh, passed away just before Christmas. He had a cancer diagnosis, but uh, while he was in hospital recovering from that cancer, uh, COVID, uh, he, he contracted COVID and it took him very, very quickly. And Leo is somebody who, who means a great deal to both of us. You, of course, uh, working side by side with him as assistant editor in the Socialist Register, for uh, several years now, we're much, much closer to him. So I wanted to bring you on the program as, as a way to kind of talk about his legacy and talk about his work and also just kind of commiserate with me being someone who, you know, Leo took under his wing for a very short period of time. I was Leo's last uh, research assistant. Um, so I have the uh, dubious honor of being his last hand selected research assistant, but you, you were similarly chosen 
a few years before, a fellow American as well who went off to study at York University. We're going to talk about finance. We're going to talk about the current political conjuncture. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of heady, brainy, nerdy, dusty stuff that you guys know and love uh, here on DPS here in, in, in this coming episode. But before we get there, let's reflect on this man. You know, Let's reflect on this giant. He was a mentor. He was a friend. But to you and, and to me and to a lesser degree, he was, he was just Leo. Let's go back. Talk to how you came across his work and, and how he sort of took you in at York and, and sort of grounded uh, who you are today as a, as a scholar and as an activist and, and as, a, as a person. Let's kind of go deep there. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I should also add to your, to your list there that I was Leo's last PhD student. The yeah. dissertation that I produced would end up being his last, which is another kind of unfortunate de- uh, designation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, so I first heard about Leo the same time I first heard about York, which was when I was at American University doing my master's. And the making of global capitalism was just about to come out. And I had just gotten into kind of political economy. Uh, in a serious way. And I was reading Marx and, and all that stuff with Harvey. And uh, a, a, a professor of mine, who was a kind of left Keynesian, suggested that I look into York. And of course, you can't look into York without, if you're looking to study political economy, which I was, without finding Leo Panitch. And I saw this description of this forthcoming book, The Making of Global Capitalism. And I was just bowled over because my whole life was the US empire. That was what I was primarily concerned with knowing about and opposing and I had been involved in the anti-war movement. That's kind of how I came of age politically, so to speak. And I was an anarchist, basically, at that time. Mm-hmm. And I came to York. I, well, I applied, and I got in touch with Leo, and he was supportive of me. And I came to York, and the first time I met Leo, I think the first week I was in Toronto, I believe, I was at their book launch for Leo and Sam's The Making of Global Capitalism. Hmm. And I got... Uh, around 2012, Toronto, or thereabouts? Something like that. Yeah, at the Toronto Public Library, the launch. And, you know... I met Leo for the first time there and I, you know, then went to his office the next day and we talked about politics and, you know, just like Leo is, as he has a reputation far and wide for being, you know, he immediately left a major imprint on me. I mean, you can immediately within, you know, minutes of meeting him, you can feel the force of his personality and his ideas and his convic- his convictions. And you, you do get the sense kind of right away that you're in the presence of somebody who has a lot to say. <laughs> And, and a very strong and powerful way of saying it. So that definitely will be an experience that I'll remember. And that rubs off. Again, one, one of the things I mentioned in my eulogy is the way that not only that he has a lot to say, but he has a way of empowering those around him and giving confidence to people that they also, they, they too have a lot to say. And I, yeah. I was also had the, the, the uh, somewhat tragic distinction of being in his last seminar on uh, the globalization and the state course which um, he had taught at York for a couple of decades and different iterations, which let, of course then led up to his book, The Making of Global Capitalism. And, and he, you know, he would sit there and he would allow himself to be taken to task potentially by like a first year MA student, you know, <laughs> he'd say, but maybe I have this wrong. You know, what do you think? Right. You yeah. know, you're, yeah. you're a war. I mean, it, it, he gave special privilege to someone who had an activist background. I remember yeah. there was a, there was a specific gentleman, uh, in my, in my course, who was a fellow MA at the time. And, and he had been in the anti-globalization kind of anti-war movement for some time. And, and though the kid may have shown up like, you know, maybe I don't, I don't remember, I don't want to besmirch the guy, but he, he could have shown up, you know, half high and, and, uh, you know, hardly having read the work, but Leo would, would, would sort of dig in and ask him if he thought that, you know, he, he got this thing right because he, because he really valued other people's kind of experience in the movements 
as much as, you know, any grasp that they may or may not have had on, on the literature. Yeah, um, for sure. Very, I mean, yeah. Very egalitarian guy, despite the power that he would often wield in, in other realms. Yeah. And I think probably what you're getting at too, and what you're getting at in your original question is this aspect of Leo that so many people have commented on, which is basically that, you know, he makes you who you are. He, yeah. he brings things out of you yep. that you didn't know you had in you. He challenges you. He doesn't tell you what to think in terms of making you learn his line or something or the politically correct view on this or that issue. But he forces you to think really hard about the things that you believe and that you think and that you want to say. He doesn't let you get away with lazily defending things that are kind of grounded in dogmas on the left or general mm-hmm. impressions or the politically correct on the, on the radical left things to think or say. You know, he, he really pushes you to, to defend yourself and to know what you're talking about and, and to think really hard. And I think that, above all, is why so many people come away from uh, meeting him or being around him or working with him with a sense that who they are is so deeply shaped by those interactions with him because he brought that out of them through these kind of very much a process of dialogue and debate and discussion which is another thing about Leo in this case that wasn't so remarked on, I found, in a lot of the eulogies and so on that I read to him, which is that actually Leo loved to work with others. Mm-hmm. He thrived yeah. in collaboration. I mean, all of his books are basically co-written with other people, either with Sam Gindin or Colin Lees or me and Sam in the case of the Socialist Challenge today. Many of his Register essays are co-written with Sam. When he joined the Register, when he took over from Ralph, not only did he bring on a co-editor, Colin initially, uh, later Greg and Vivek as well. Uh, Colin Lees, Greg Albo, and Vivek Chibber. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. um, but he also created the Editorial Collective, which, mm-hmm. which is an international group of scholars in the US, UK, Africa, Asia, Latin America, all over the world who play a role in providing input for essays and themes, finding authors. And that collective collaborative editorial process that he established played a huge role in expanding the register's reach and impact and the scope of ideas and, and thinkers and themes that it could cover. Uh, that was Leo. And, and he was actually incredible. That's, those are the situations that he thrived in, was in conversations with others, in dialogue with others, in debate with others. I mean, I don't think in the past 10 years of that, since I've known him, hardly a day has gone by when he, until he died, sadly, um, where he hasn't sent me some email provocatively with a, with a link to an article that he thought disproved something that I had said in some argument with him <laughs> provocatively with one sentence on top, you know, what do you think of this Mar? You know, that, <laughs> um, and that's just how he was, you know, he, yeah. he, he wasn't doing that because he was being confrontational or something. He just wanted to, to discuss and to, yeah. to continue the, to continue that back and forth. Um, and that really is how he thrived, you know, loved conferences, all that stuff. And yet, you know, someone who who is not afraid to take you to task uh, could be such a, 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 a almost like a, a system builder, a, an institution builder, I guess you should say, an institution builder. You know, I mean, <laughs> similar to his thesis about, you know, states in the 90s that would emerge, you know, and grow into the 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 book he wrote uh, on, the, you know, the importance of the American state and the global economy with Sam Gendon in 2012. You know, states have to be made. Uh, the left has to be made. And the left, as we know it, the kind of uh, the the old new left, as we know it, um, as it has you know been passed on to us to, to to our generation, people younger than us. My God, like we're 
we're not we're not the youngest in, on the left anymore, Steve. I don't know if you noticed or not. If you, you got the memo, <laughs> I uh, know <clears throat> these kids out there are killing it, and I'm just like, how old are you again? He, you know, <laughs> see some ID on that one. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, we all, we're we're going to be the old heads soon. But but you know, the real yeah. old heads. Um, when we were coming up, you know, he you know he played a really critical role in making that left, and for all of its you know weaknesses, that he was damn you know f- very well familiar with. Yeah. About the fact that they were, you know, primarily located in universities instead of in the trade unions, instead of in socialist parties. Yeah. Uh, but it was the best that they could do at the time for the time with the aspiration of of building, you know, a, a different kind of left. But he in large part was and it's just, you know, there's just a an unbearable gap in some ways with his absence. Um, but it's, it's a model, I think, that uh, we could all emulate and learn a lot from. And. Uh, you know, moving moving on from Leo the person, although I'm sure there will be many stories and kind of, uh, you know, opportunities for us to share different things uh, about that and him and in, in his life. Um, let's talk about his work, because, I mean, I think, you know, that what what absolutely was tragic to me, and I mentioned this in my eulogy um, the week of his passing, um, I, I replayed a B-side uh, for the audience. Those of you who haven't heard this, you should really go back and listen to it. I, I played a B-side that originally aired in 2017 for patrons of the show. And, uh, I tricked him into talking about himself by asking him about the people that he sort of came up with <laughs> uh, because he he sat me down. Well, he didn't sit me down. We were, we were podcasting. He said uh, prior to recording, he said, now, Adam, I don't want to talk about myself. That's very boring. I don't want to. He said the same thing at his retirement uh, conference, a conference held in his honor. Yeah. He's, he scolded those in attendance for talking too much about him yeah. instead of focusing on the project at hand, right? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about his work. You know, um, I had hoped 10 years from now, whichever whichever iteration of this podcast exists or doesn't exist 10 years from now, I'd hope to sit down with him when he was much older and much grayer. Uh, maybe instead of, you know, uh, towering at 6'4 or thereabouts, he'd shrunk down to 5'11 and I could look at him <laughs> eye to eye. Um, you know, I, I'd hope to have that conversation and kind of coax him into a retrospective of his life and a kind of systematization of his work and, and what it means. But it, it seems that now people like yourself, Steve, and, and, and my, me to a lesser degree are, are going to be tasked with conveying that project onto the, to the next generation. Um, let's talk about that. What do you take to be the kind of some of the central imports, some of the central lessons of, of his approach, his body of work? Yeah, there is there is a kind of thread. There's a couple of different threads I think that go that go through Leo's scholarly contributions. I would say first, he detested theory for theory's sake. Mm-hmm. He detested people, left intellectuals, just kind of sitting around, as he called it, concept spinning, talking, developing basically language to talk to each other, a sophisticated intellectual elite who were disciplined and educated in these concepts. That actually had no bearing for working class struggle. He hated that. Mm-hmm. And so all of his work, everything he ever did, is deeply concerned to contribute to the social to the development of socialism, to the to informing social strategy, to uh, enriching our knowledge of the world as it is, such that we can change it. So that was the main thread, I would say, which is the most fundamental. The other one is another thread I would mention is more um, analytical which is he began with the critique of social democracy and tried to think through the ways in which social democratic parties and states had served 
not the reasons why they didn't lead to socialism. You know, despite the ostensible claims of these parties, why did they not lead to a new another kind of society? And from that, he moved into the kind of theorization of American empire, and which was grounded in part in a analysis or understanding of how the financial apparatuses of the American state became politicized to, to, in, in, to enforce a kind of class power on the working class. So his analysis of the state moved from, from a kind of understanding of a theorization of how social democracy served to discipline the working class, constrain its political horizons, uh, keep us within capitalism and prevent forms of struggle from emerging that could possibly go beyond it, or at least not encourage them. Through a kind of critique of corporatism in the 1980s, where you know people had thought that the development of these corporatist models in the 70s would ultimately lead to a socialist transition, which were really just ways of managing the crisis and in fact disciplining the working class, into a theory of the American empire, where he's showing how the rise of the financial apparatus uh, and its its protection and its its isolation insulation from mechanisms of democratic accountability served to in a new kind of way in a new kind of political moment discipline the working class and prevent form a real barrier to the transition to another kind of society and and point toward the importance of transforming the state so I think these two things together I would say are the main threads that I could see running through the work that he did. Just, I mean, everything there, right? Everything you sort of brought is just the just intense, relentless focus on strategy and mapping the terrain of struggle. Um, yeah. It was just, you know, it's something that you just can't go through York even for a short period of time like I did and not come away just totally transformed by. And that's sort of, just, it, it, you know, absolutely informs what I try to do here on DPS. And, and I think what makes my approach different from other people, and it doesn't come from anything special inside of me, it become, it comes from Leo's training. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, I, people might pe- find it obnoxious sometimes that I don't just bring on guests to talk about their ideas, but that every single guest, I sort of have to ask to them, oh, okay, so what, what, what kind of, imp- you know, impacts does this have on your sort of strategic understanding of how this works? That's Leo, right? That's Leo talking uh, through, through, you know, my, of course, you know, sometimes attempts that he himself would come on the show and disagree with. But that, but the point being is that that's agree or disagree. That's, that's just, that's, if you're not doing that, you're not, what are you doing? You're not doing socialist politics. You're not thinking seriously about anything that's significant, transformative in the world. Let's, let's go back and talk a little bit about his um, critique of corporatism, because this is something that's probably lesser known, but, but it's more critical now. I think that we have something that looks like a, an increasingly viable social democratic um, upsurge in the U S right. That could conceivably be, um, (laughs) reignited now i know you're going to take me to task for this and rightly so but we could conceivably see some transmogrified version of kind of bastardized bastardized ideological corporatism under a kind of finance capital rubric of some and in other words that finance capital could play a similar role in propping up um working class advancement at least in a sort of how should i say a very superficial way. We could see uh, a growth in the in in, so, in the social safety net, for example, um, in a in a limited sort of way. Which again, 
that's not saying much, given that how far we've fallen, how far our social safety has fallen in the United States. It wouldn't take much to, to dole out a, a few crumbs here and there. But again, that long wind-up aside, let's talk about Leo's discussion of corporatism. What was the moment that he was trying to, to capture there? What moment in the development of political economy was he trying to – American political – global political economy was he trying to capture there? And what was his – what was inter, his, his real – crucial intervention, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not the, the just to preface it, the point, I don't think Leo's point and certainly not our point would, would never be to, to, to simply shit on uh, important reforms that are, that are better and improve people's lives within capitalism. I mean, those reforms are vital. I mean, people need healthcare, people need, uh, you know, housing. And so those are not, uh, those are not simply to be dismissed. The question that would concern Leo that did concern Leo is, is how do we, chart a course from these reforms to a new kind of society, mm-hmm. you know, based on fundamentally different relations of production, based on a transformed state. How, how do we go beyond simply ref, uh, reforms that, that are kind of aiding social provision to a more deep and more fundamental social transformation? Right. And I think what, he, what, he, what his work on corporatism was primarily concerned with was showing how... Uh, in opposition to what a lot of people on the left at the time were saying, the way in which the trade unions were being entangled with the administrative apparatuses of the capitalist state through these corporatist arrangements in the 1970s was not something that was going to lead toward this kind of new society. It was not going to lead toward socialist forms of planning. It was, it, it was going to turn the trade unions into a mechanism for disciplining the working class to give them a better deal within capitalism, mm-hmm. and then to discipline them to accepting that deal and not ask for more than what was supposedly possible. And what was possible was conditioned by capitalist social relations. So the important point for Leo was to show the limits of this. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the trade unions became disciplinary mechanisms, limiting the struggles of the working class, even as they helped to secure important benefits and important reforms. So this has been a challenge to socialists to figure out what to do about this. It wasn't good enough to simply say, we want, we want these corporatist arrangements. We want trade unions. You need to change. You need to have fundamentally different kinds of trade unions. You need to have a fundamentally different kind of state. Simply absorbing trade unions and tangling them within the bureaucratic structures of the capitalist state as it is, is not going to lead to socialism, uh, nor is just simply nationalizing a larger number of industries or the, or the banks as Mitterrand did in France. You have to fundamentally change how they're organized. You have to democratize the state so that whatever nationalization occurs, you know, taking things under public control, broader sectors of industry and finance is actually accountable to the public in some way and not just run along the same capitalist lines as what happened in France. Right. So, so this is the fundamental concern I think of all of this stuff is to try to chart a way forward from here. And to find ways to build on reforms that are important in order to push forward and go further. You know, yeah. and if you look at the making of global capitalism, one of the most important chapters in the book is called The Contradictions of Success. Mm, yes. And that is the book about the unraveling of Keynesianism. That is the chapter mm-hmm. about the unraveling of Keynesianism. And the reason why they use Leo and Sam use the term the contradictions of success is that it was actually the success of Keynesian mm-hmm. programs at securing full empo- employment, of, of supporting unionization, et cetera which led to the, the profit squeeze crisis in the 1970s in, in the United States and elsewhere. You know, union wage militancy 
continuing, despite the fact that productivity gains had declined, meant that wage gains outstripped profitability and that there was a squeeze on profits. So the question was what to do with this crisis in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Keynesian regime had been successful. You have this, which created the profit squeeze crisis. And so now what what do you do? The unions ended up backing off and accepting concessionary bargaining, et cetera, over time. And eventually the unions were weakened and dismantled by and large. So the question is, why couldn't they push further? Why wasn't there at that, at that moment the opportunity for the working class to push through the capitalist crisis and to say, okay, well, if, if we're asking for things that are perfectly reasonable, like uh, you know, uh, a certain standard of living, housing, education, et cetera, and, this, and you're telling us that capitalism can't support this, why, why is it the reforms that are seen as impossible rather than capitalism being seen as untenable? Mm-hmm. And it's because of the, it's partly because of the, of the lack of a socialist organization, the lack of a socialist class struggle uh, orientation on the part of the working class. And that's not just an ideological problem. It's a material problem based on the forms of organization and working class formation that existed at that time. The limits of the trade union movement. It wasn't geared toward militant class struggle. It wasn't geared toward building a new world. It was geared toward winning higher wages and benefits. And it could do that. And that's it. You know, it didn't have a class struggle capacity to push forward something more progressive. And so that you see that critique of corporatism that he had uh, articulated in the 1980s and 70s um, coming coming through also in the making of global capitalism. And the same kind of question now in historical perspective being asked. And of course, the consequences of this were dire. We ended up with neoliberalism. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, it was even worse. I mean, he sort of calls this in his writings on corporatism. It's not just the case that. You know, when, when trade unions are only looking out for their wages and benefits, they can't do anything more. But it's actually the case that, you know, that eventually they can't even do that. Right. When you're when you're fighting for a certain kind of uh, bureaucratized NHS um, and, and you, you know, you're not trying to extend care and democratize, uh, you know, the, the, the entire enterprise and all the rest of it. It's not just the case that, you know, you can't do any more. It's the case that eventually you won't even be able to maintain the NHS as it was, which is all, all of this has come to pass, right? All of this is, this is why his writings here are so critical and so crucial. These are collected in the, I think his most underrated book. And maybe I think you'll agree with me. Most people who, who I know Baskar Sankarov, Jackman has, has said this in other contexts, but uh, working class politics and crisis essays on labor and the state, which are just, you know, a collection of essays, primarily many of them appeared in the Canadian dimension or the register or elsewhere. Um, really, really important writings and just uh, prescient and sort of predicting and seeing through the the end result of neoliberalism in that respect that, that Leo was some one thing that uh, was remind, you know brought to mind front and center and the editor of Tribune magazine, Ronan Burtonshaw, wrote a nice tribute uh, uh, to, uh, to Leo and a eulogy, if you will. And one thing he reminded everybody of was the fact that Leo was very opposed to sort of rehabilitating, reestablishing Tribune as a magazine. Because Tribune was sort of the the outlet of that old left that Leo saw as as having been vanquished, having been so wrong, so having having been so backwards with respect to these arguments that he was ha- waging in the seventies and eighties and beyond, even and sort of leading into the the trap of Blairism. Um, and uh, and so you know Leo in, in these generationally you know can be identified with elements of the old left, but he was a he was a real revolutionary even inside the old left 
there's a lot of, he was forward thinking precocious in that way. Yeah. I just, I just, it's just overwhelming how, how important all of this is. I want to go back and dive into it myself. And I would encourage anybody who's listening right now. I mean, I know we're giving a gloss on an extraordinary, extraordinarily complex and far reaching body of literature, but um, I just want to encourage you all to go back to it. Um, find that uh, working class politics and crisis. It's by Verso. I know it's still out. It's still in print. Um, devour this stuff. This needs to be on the minds and the thoughts and tongues of socialists going forward in the next, in the, in the next decade. Uh, quite Renew, renewing socialism too. renewing socialism is another mm. great Leo mm-hmm. book. That's very, very underrated. And it's also uh, a collection of essays. Really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Both of those again, I mean, don't, don't miss of course the making of global capitalism, but that's, that's, you're going to need to really study that one, but these two are, are, are you know, um, equally, equally important. Let's talk about your contribution, uh, your more immediate contribution to the socialist challenge today. You helped Leo and Sam Gendon write the latest edition. What were you trying to accomplish there? I mean, and and uh, let's talk about kind of a uh, late Leo. Let's bring him up to up to up to present. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I've been very pleased about is I've heard that certain elements inside of DSA um, have gotten a hold of that book and they've used it extensively in their political education. And I hope that they do because um, we're really going to need to kind of um, put our heads together for the next couple of years to determine what has come out of this Corbin Sanders series a moment. And it looks like we're on the cusp of something else, some other kind of explosion in the United States, perhaps with these, um, you know, we're in this very strange position of having like, you know, um, pretty ideologically sound democratic socialists in Congress. What do we do with that? What does that mean? Right. What kind of new capacities? There's another word, capacities. That word comes off my tongue at least once an episode. And that's 100% cribbed from Leo Panich. Capacities is something that the left needs to be thinking about. That capacities is a a word that collapses these really silly um, agency versus structure debates, doesn't it? And it makes you think more about the, the, um, the imbrication of, of both in the way that socialists have to build institutions, which then, you know, ground new capacities and then go deeper and go further and go beyond. Talk about that word for us. I, you know, I've, <laughs> I like to harp on that word a lot on this show, but you're, you're better suited to do it than, than I am. What does that mean to you? Capacities? Yeah, no, he, yeah, that, that is one of his, that is one of his words. It's funny. Once you mentioned it, it immediately yeah. occurs to me that you're right. Um, yeah. I, oh, I stole about it. 100%. It yeah. Just, just no, no, no shame. <laughs> <laughs> No, he did. He said, yeah, that was his, that was one of his words. What did that mean um, to him? Right. I mean, it, I think it's just a piece of really like specific uh, technical jargon. Yeah. It, 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 I think you're, I think you're onto something when you say about the collapsing of structure and agency because mm-hmm. capacities has, has this, this dimension of its meaning of basically implying something that could exist that does not exist. Mm-hmm. Right. Or that, that exists in a na- nascent form. And so the point then is to find the right organizational forms to realize these capacities or to develop organizational forms that grant capacities. Right. So it's all about the, the, this, pro- this idea of the making. You know, this, this, everything is in a state of becoming, mm-hmm. obviously, in, on an ongoing, in an ongoing way. The idea of making something means to intervene in this process of becoming in a deliberate way, so as to influence it and steer it towards what you think needs to happen. And so I think the making of global capitalism and the making of the working class was Thompson's book. You know, 
Pan Leo loved that idea of the making, and he and it's it's related to this question of capacities because we need to find ways to make the working class to realize its capacities, such that it can transform the state, right? Transform the state and realize our democratic potential. So yeah, I think I think that is absolutely crucial. Yeah. Again, another 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 way that Leo's just foundationally transform my approach to politics. And I try to, you know, it, it leaks out in every single episode. Um, yeah. If every, every episode is, if nothing, it's almost just like a footnote on uh, <laughs> something else that he had written. Um, yeah. But uh, it's crazy. It's crazy how that happens. But um, going back to the question, um, the question of capacities in our sort of current political conjuncture, that's something that you and Sam and Leo addressed in your, in your latest book. Um, take us up to present. Um, right. Again, I'm asking, these are big, big questions. I know. I mean, each one of these uh, questions deserves an entire episode, but uh, see what so you got. It, I should add, it's not Leo's last book. Leo's last book w- would be mm. the Searching for Socialism book with Colin Lees. Right, um, right. But it's it's Leo's second to the last book. But but, but yeah, so he, that- He owed me an interview on that. I'm never going to get it, but uh, yeah. we're going to be talking with um, Max Shanley uh, over in, in uh, Britain for the listeners out there. Uh, Max and I are going to be talking about that book. Leo, actually from from hospital, from his hospital bed, recommended uh, Max as a a capable <laughs> a capable replacement to discuss that book. So we'll be doing that in the coming weeks. Max is great. Max is absolutely wonderful. He's a wonderful, beautiful person, and I'm yeah. sure he'll be he'll be uh, he'll do as well as anyone could to fill those shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah so the, the the socialist challenge today book basically had its genesis in the Syriza experiment and the experiments in Europe of the new parties, Podemos and Blanco as well. And it was, it was about trying to understand the potentials, the, capa- <laughs> the capacities, this is the, back to the making again, uh, mm-hmm. the potential of these new organizational forms to build the working class, to engage in working class formation. Right? One of Leo's absolutely crucial and most deeply held political convictions was that we need a socialist party, a party of a different kind that can serve, in his words, as the fulcrum between working class formation and state transformation. And what that meant was that that the socialist party, its crucial role is to form the working class as a political agent, and then to give that agency political expression in the project of transforming the state. And the only way to do that is to cultivate people's democratic capacities to debate, to argue, to think, to strategize, to understand. And then on that basis, democratically, to articulate the working class as a historical force that can actually transform the capitalist state into something that is a democratic socialist state. And so that book was an attempt to take stock of the extent to which Syriza had been able to achieve this in Greece, and the extent to which, which was a project Leo was very close to, mm-hmm. and in some ways a problematic, uh, I would say I would have disagreements with some of his assessments of Syriza at different moments, mm-hmm. uh, but he was very close to that project, and uh, as, as well as the Corbyn project in the UK around Momentum, and then uh, later we added the, the stuff on Sanders in the US. And the question was of organizational forms the extent to which these organizational forms could begin, had begun or could begin laying the groundwork 
from a party of a different kind, a party that's not just based on the technocratic rule, the rule of a technocratic elite in the social democratic party sense. You know, Leo was very, very fond in, in all of his talks and lectures and, and in his writing of quoting uh, Michel's, the iron law of oligarchy, that basically holds that you know, any organization, however democratic, is ultimately going to fall prey to the domination of, a, of an elite group. And so the fundamental challenge that Leo saw was how do we get past Michel's iron law of oligarchy, such that we have a democratic organization that doesn't just become ossified behind some fixed elite group, leadership group. So the socialist challenge today was, was, was dealing with that organizational question. And it was also assessing in this context in which it is obviously not possible to put on the agenda the question of you know, seizing the means of production and guillotining the capitalist class. Not that he would have ever favored that. He would have favored seizing the means of production, but probably not guillotining the entire capitalist class. Yeah. I'm being a little bit cheeky. But yeah. in this context in which, in which seizing the means of production in this radical way is not on the agenda, because there, there are no, not that it's not desirable, but there are no forces among the working class that are capable of executing such a program. And the public hasn't been won over to the idea that this is necessary. So how do we get from here to there? How do we get from where we are to a state where, to a situation where seizing the means of production and, and, and uh, organizing an economy in a democratic way becomes possible? And most importantly, do the proposals and the policies put forward by Sanders and Corbyn offer a road to a socialist economy or a socialist society? You know, obviously they are not themselves a transition to socialism. Nothing that Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn put forward constitutes an immediate transition to a socialist society. I don't think even they would argue that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, is what they're putting forward going to help us get there in terms of the actual policies and ideas? And if not, what should they do? What do we want? If it was, if it was the case that Jeremy Corbyn became the prime minister of the UK and Bernie Sanders became the president of the United States, what would we want them to do? that right. could help us get toward a socialist society. Right. And so we took a very detailed look at a lot of the policies they put, put forward in terms of industrial policy and, and um, trade unions and so on. And we tried to take stock of, of how these forms of intervention, you know, whether they were helpful or, or the risk that they would actually be harmful. And in some mm-hmm. cases, I think they would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we specifically tried to contrast them with the policies put forward by Elizabeth Warren to ask us to ask the question, you know, very basically, do they actually get beyond the limits of progressive liberalism? And I think it, the answer was mixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even even if, to the extent that you know there were criticisms to be made, there were again contradictions of success. One of the one of the sort of things that I, I like to push on is that is that you know one of the things that no matter how harsh you know Leo could be with his criticisms, no or or um, just decisive, uh, powerful with his criticisms. It was never coming from a place that was, that is a path that's so well worn on the left and on the far left, which is to, to cry, um, you know, to make various accusations of capitulation or, or to, to blame, uh, various political actors of, of not possessing like the intestinal fortitude to do, to carry through, you know, the ultimate program, these very, um, you know, just dripping with idealism, um, without any, um, you know, uh, attunement to the kind of material conditions, the balance of class forces, 
Um, even again, you know, mo- most, um, you know, most especially in his assessment of Series A, which you, know, you you mentioned you have some you had some disagreements and and I, I to this day I'm still not a hundred percent sure on where I stand. But what what I do know is that again I'm very very won over to Leo's hesitancy or just utter lack of. I mean, the word doesn't. I don't I'm not sure capitulation exists in his vocabulary. Certainly not in the same way that uh, it's leaned on so heavily as a as an. Uh, uh, just this, you know, one size fits all explanation uh, wielded by the global left over the events of the past four to five years. Um, but again, that made him a target, didn't it? It put a target on his back. A lot of people yeah. viewed him as a kind of wishy-washy social democrat for that purpose. Of course, he, he was he was nothing of the sort. Um, but I think these questions going, you know, circling back again, I, I promised I'd pepper in some some little kind of anecdotes about Leo as we're talking about his work and the importance of it. Um, but let's 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 not leave. Uh, that thread hanging that you left out there. Let's pull in a little bit. You mentioned um, some of the policies that uh, were had been pursued by Corbyn in the series of government, and uh, compared to Warren's kind of uh, liberal rehabilitationism or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, we're in the, we're in a moment right now going forward, and it, it's heartbreaking that Leo's not going to be around to see it. We are in a moment in in the U.S. context, anyway where we have people like Cory Bush, we have people like, uh, we've got Bowman and you know, obviously the squad is still there with, with and all the problematic ways that, that they exist and, and, and assert themselves. Um, um, needless to say, you know, even the, even the congressional progressive caucus has established rules to, to whip votes. And so you could see a left progressive block. And I mean, progressive, like more left than Liz Warren here. Um, you know, not that Katie Porter is the worst thing to happen in the U.S. Congress. I mean, my God, look what happened last week. But, but uh, people more stridently uh, left leftists than than even the the Warrenites. What does this mean for our approach uh, as as a socialist project in in, in North America and, and and across the world? Yeah, I mean, have you, have you given any thought to this? Surely you all were in constant conversation over, over these developments. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to speak for Leo. I can say that that one uh, uh, concern, one of his all constant concerns was, you know, the need to go with for these democratic socialists. And, you know, not just at the federal level, at the municipal level and the state level to be going door to door, you know, to be organizing neighborhoods, to mm-hmm. be to be actually creating a situation where socialist politics is part of people's immediate reality and to be creating you know, direct alliances at the level of communities. Um, you know, and he, he wondered about the extent to which that was happening and hoped that it did. Um, but, but from my own perspective, I mean, I, I, I agree with all that, of course. And I, to, to assess kind of the, the question that you're putting to me, um, it's really a matter of, recognizing that these are major victories for the left in the U.S. to have Cory Bush and AOC and, and um, uh, you know, Ilan Omar. It's, it's a real, it's a major victory for us. It puts, it puts us on the map. It puts our ideas on the agenda. It creates an opening and hope for, for there to be a more progressive direction taken in, in American politics. Um, there's a long way to go, I think, in terms of actually building this into a force that would be anything like a socialist party. Um, you know, not least because I don't think that they're interested in doing that, those people. Um, so, you know, I think that, yeah, the steps you pointed to, uh, 
the, the, the progressive caucus, you know, the reforms there have been really important toward making this a more tightly knit and more powerful group. The fact that the Democrats lost seats in the House uh, in the recent election means that um, the progressive wing of the party has an outsized influence because mm-hmm. th- none of them lost. In fact, the, the squad, so to speak, grew. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a larger proportion of the total Democratic uh, group in Congress. So that means, you know, that they have outsized influence now on any policies that are passed. And they have basically any, nothing can get done without their assent, more or less. So their opportunity is there for them to, to flex some muscle and to begin to put some things on the agenda, begin to find kind of ways of working together at a basic level. Um, I think, you know, the long-term goal of a dirty break, for me, remains the only realistic path to a socialist party in the U.S., despite how difficult that is going to be. I mean, the danger, of course, always being that the day, the moment of the break is is indefinitely prolonged right. until you end up doing what, you know, the Austro-Marxists did and just kind of forgetting that you ever wanted to do that. <laughs> um, Revise the narrative. And just becoming, yeah, yeah and, and then the, the path kind of leads to the dead end of a kind of neo-Harringtonite politics. Um, but but I think that that is the only way because of the, the way in which the two-party system is entrenched and all that. But I think it really behooves us to not be too hasty and to be very calculated and deliberate in the way that this that this the base for this has to be built, both in the working class in terms of organizing in the trade unions, um, not just the trade unions as they are either, organizing to transform those unions into vehicles of militant class struggle, and and to form you know bonds with community organizers, and but ultimately you know you really can't talk seriously about a dirty break until you've got people elected like thirty percent of the Democratic caucus, you know, and then you and then you can have a split, but like eight individual members of Congress splitting from the Democratic Party, what's that going to achieve other than right. self-marginalization? Um, and so it was this kind of attitude that I think Leo would bring. I don't want to say this is what Leo would say, because I don't know. But this is, this, is, this is the seriousness, I think, that you're pointing to, Adam, that we have to think with if we want to follow Leo's example, which is, which is not to simply say Bernie Sanders is a coward for not saying we should execute Elon Musk yeah. you know, or whatever. It's, it's instead to say, okay, this is the real world. It's all well and good to stand on the side and, and take a piss all over Bernie Sanders or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, but this is the real world. It's this world that has to be changed. So the reason why you don't have somebody like, like in Bernie's position saying, let's execute the capitalist class and seize the means of production isn't because of cowardice. It's because the person who said that wouldn't be in Bernie's position. So it's right. not just a matter of individual courage or individual political orientation or moral purity. It's a question of needing to change the world in a much deeper and more fundamental way before we can arrive at that moment where such a, a, a serious transformation is on the agenda. Yeah. We're in a moment now. And again, I, I don't know where you stood on the force to vote uh, debate with the kind of complexity and the seriousness with which we're talking about politics right now that almost just seems profane to bring up. Uh, you know i mean just because it's just again which wherever you fall i mean it's just such a silly thing in 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 the grand scheme of the kind of seriousness that we're talking about politics here but but one one thing that was i I found to be the most troubling with with the the merits on both sides of the arguments the the most troubling thing that i think is you know we can say unequivocally is that the extent to which some of the partisans there were openly saying they're openly ready to burn it down if they don't get what they want, because there's a certain kind of, uh, I mean, a Manichaeanism um, sort of uh, implied there, t- entangled there uh, with, with uh, the kind of um, this, t- just this desperation of a, of a, a now or never, you know, and, and, um, 
And I think it just, it certainly lacks a medium to long-term view. Um, but I mean, let's contextualize this with some of the structural challenges that are underway, some of the structural transformations that are underway uh, with respect to what, what I promised I'd give the listeners at the, uh, the opening here, uh, the kind of our, our political economy in the finance sector. Uh, anybody who's paying attention or even paying very loose attention via Twitter will know that, you know, there are a lot of people from like the BlackRock world uh, who are showing up in, in the Biden administration. Um, we're going to see um, a lot of those finance types um, at the highest levels of, of the incoming administration. It's going to transform, uh, again, our capacities and our opponents' capacities in, in, a, in a variety of ways. Um, and there's, there, there is a reckoning of sorts coming, and it is full of danger, but it's not quite the reckoning uh, that the force-to-vote types uh, put forward. Um, maybe kind of harp on that a little bit for us. It's my understanding that um, uh, both of your forthcoming books that we'll talk about here in a moment um, deal with these big picture structural financial issues. Mm. Well, I, it's too soon to say they're forthcoming. They are under contract. Under contract. Uh, and so one of them is my dissertation, which is going to be uh, the final manuscript edited will be turned into the publisher in March. Um, so that one will be coming out sooner. The other one is a book under contract with Verso on on the current uh, organization of the financial sector and, and the industrial corporation. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's a big question, but I, I think, you know, what, what you're getting at is is, a, is a, a, a one indication of a significant shift that's gone on in the in the structure of power in the capitalist class, um, which which has moved from, you know, in the 2008 crisis, we saw the Federal Reserve working with J.P. Morgan to organize the crisis fighting measures and the resolution to that crisis. Now, with the coronavirus crisis, we see BlackRock, right? And and I think this is indicative of where the where the center of power is in the economy now, and how the financial sector, especially, is organized. You know, and how we would define as socialists, you know, the, the commanding heights of the economy. Where they where are the commanding heights of the economy? How are they organized? And how do we go about uh, changing and democratizing that organization? Is a big, big question, and probably the key question for the left. And that's some of the some of the questions that I'm going to be trying to asking in my in my uh, upcoming work. Um, but yes, I think what you're pointing to is is one indication of the scale of the shift that's gone on since 2008, especially, which is that the the banking sector now is actually uh, not even the center of uh, allocating investment across the economy anymore. Could Uh, you make that distinction for us? I mean, partially for me, because I mean, it's, it's, it's rather opaque to anyone, but certainly members of my audience who have a, a less kind of scholarly approach to finance. And, and again, why would you? Because when you're broke like us, you know, you don't really pay much attention to what BlackRock is up to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what? How do you distinguish uh, the operation, the function of BlackRock uh, with a more kind of, um, nat- I mean, it's even kind of strange to say that JP Morgan was traditional because in, in the context of 2008, they were quite revolutionary. And yet, uh, tw- 12 to 13 years later, they're kind of, um, I mean, they're like the... Uh, you know the uh, the top hat wearing uh, financiers of the 1920s. In retrospective, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's odd how fast uh, these transformations have have gone. Yeah, well, I mean, it's partly because of the the re-regulation of the banking sector under Dodd Frank, which was massive, much more so than the left usually appreciates. Um, the extent of re-regulation, some of my research is showing, of the financial of uh, the the banking sector under Dodd Frank was very very large, and that actually created space for what's often called the, the shadow banking sector or uh, market-based finance, 
um, you know, portfolio management. It's basically these firms that directly invest across, they own and invest across corporations. It's effectively very similar in structure to the old investment banks that uh, were killed were killed by Glass Steagall um, after during the uh, the New Deal period, uh, where basically the Glass Steagall the, the Banking Act of 1932. What it what it did is it separated banks from the governance of uh, industrial corporations by saying either you have to be an investment bank, in which case you can't take uh, uh, deposits, or you have to be a consumer bank, in which case you can't have seats on boards of directors and that kind of thing. Um, and so what it basically meant was that the investment banking model that had existed and dominated the economy until that time, what Hilferding described as finance capital, was killed. Uh, it had already declined over a longer term for other reasons, but that was the formal kind of like coup de grace. That was the end of the investment banks. And so this represents, in a way, a kind of rebirth of that model, uh, where you have these portfolio management companies, you know, as, uh, market-based finance, like, like BlackRock, State Street, et cetera, Vanguard, who in many cases don't even trade. They, they're actually, they're what's called passive management firms. I mean, this gets all very complicated, mm -hmm. but what that basically means is that passive management basically means that they, they, they're contractually not allowed to trade mm -hmm. unless to reflect the shifting weight of a firm that they own uh, equities in, in an index. So like, you know, pick an index, the NASDAQ, whatever, um, as a firm becomes more or less significant based on its, its market valuation in that index, these passive investment funds will trade shares. So they'll buy if it becomes more significant in the index, they'll sell if it becomes less significant. Um, so what that's meant then is that these, these very, very concentrated uh, firms have to develop other ways of influencing corporate management besides just selling stock. So what they've done is they've created all kinds of new linkages that are much denser with the firms that they own uh, and have a stake in. Not when I say own, I don't mean own 100%, you know, own some share of. Uh, and, and that has led to all kinds of new institutional linkages between these uh, firms that we just mentioned, the big three are Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, and industrial corporations. And then there's a whole side of this that also um, pertains to the internal restructuring of industrial corporations. And in fact, as a, not as a result of this, but encouraged by this, has been this development where industrial corporations have become uh, much more like private equity companies. So the conglomerate form that existed, you know, from the golden age of capitalism all the way through neoliberalism has increasingly given way to a, a form of organization where these industrial firms themselves have become basically financial groups, uh, which are organized very similar to private equity companies that have, you know, they own and control subsidiaries. Um, so oftentimes subcontractors that, that carry out the actual production you know, in whatever part of the world, labor and uh, regulatory costs are the lowest. And that gives them the flexibility to then move capital wherever it's most efficient for them uh, at the lowest cost and the lowest risk to them. So basically the, the, the institutional form that hyper capital mobility has taken since the 90s, especially is increasingly this kind of subsidiary model, even within these industrial firms, you know, where they, they, they can move capital around quickly precisely because they have only a subcontract relationship Right. With, with the firm that's literally carrying out actual production. And they can pull that out as soon as that contract's up, however, right. you know, whatever the time horizon is on that, and put so it someplace else. The, dynam the, the, the seeming dynamism of the contemporary American and global economy 
is is actually in the in this the realm of these kind of uh, subcontractors who kind of come and go and move and shift in accordance to the needs of capital. But the kind of um, the continuity there, the the new emerging kind of um, overclass, the ruling class, or these these financiers who sort of uh, they may change names and have a different logo, but uh, they they operate under the under the same kind of um, the the banner. I mean, this is it's a it's a remarkably uh, I mean, there's, there's just this uh, tectonic shift that you're they're tracing with both of these books. I, I find to be really fascinating, but it's also kind of um, it's the juggernaut that we're up against. Um, I mean, I'd say not to be too hyperbolic about it, but for the next uh, the next century probably yeah. right like i don't it's know that long. <laughs> you know what i mean really i truly i, I think that we like there's no storming the barricades of blackrock right like they they're everywhere <laughs> this is this is the matrix baby we're talking well not even you know you can take down the uh, central processing unit or whatever of the matrix ideally but uh yeah it's big it's big um yeah yeah i mean you know i think there are openings there are certain political openings actually the irony is that you know i think uh Climate change, despite the fact that it's an unprecedented catastrophe uh, in human history, uh, actually creates also unprecedented openings, at least in the recent past, uh, to start talking about alternative forms of ownership and and, and uh, a more democratic economy. Uh, things like a Green New Deal being on the agenda. I mean, you know, we've all seen you know the five gazillion dollar price tag on the Green New Deal or whatever. That's fine, but I think the more important part of this, which which is less talked about, is is the opening that, that the opening that it creates for us to start talking about how to organize the economy in a more democratic way, and you know maybe not to be so reliant on uh, private finance to determine where investment goes. Right. You know. Now you mentioned this private finance has its uh, has its claws in in, uh, in in industrial production in various ways. I mean, one of the really critical questions I think that the left doesn't think enough about is like you know to to steal a, a title is it, how does the ruling class rule? Through what mechanisms? Like we all know, right? There's the people who own property, productive capacity, and the people who have to sell their labor power for a wage. But uh, but how does the ruling class rule via what mechanisms? And this this changes throughout the course of of, of global capitalism, American capitalism. And now we're in a situation, right, where these these finance companies um, have 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 their hooks into in, into our various productive industries and whatnot. Um, you know, I guess th- my final question and, and the, the the most difficult challenge, I think, that we're presented with, we're going to continue unpacking for many years to come. Where is the slack in the system? How much rope will this new, will our finance capital uh, overlords grant us to carry out this social democratic agenda that seems to be, um, you know, almost inevitable in some ways? Now, granted, of course, there's the, there's the, the flip turn to fascism on the other side, right? But <laughs> uh, assuming our side plays out, how much slack is in this system to give us um, a modicum of, of a social safety net before uh, we see the kind of clampdown that has historically happened um, after social democratic um, advancement, i.e. neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s? That's a really, really good question. In fact, that's the million dollar question in a way. Right. You know, what does a break with neoliberalism look like? Um, to me, the amount of slack to implement social democratic programs is basically zero hmm. today. I yeah. think that, you know, social democratic compromises, social democracy was based on the idea of a class compromise. Mm-hmm. And in order 
to have a class compromised, you have to have a part of the capitalist class that wants to compromise with you or is willing to compromise with you under the right pressures, namely trade union mobilization and that kind of thing. Um, today, there's no need for any part of capital to make those compromises because they're hypermobile. They can move anywhere they want. If you demand too much, they pull out. There are some sectors where, where the capital is less mobile. The public sector obviously is, is capitalist at all in a way. And that, that is a very important sector for labor struggles today because of that. But you know, fast food, I think, is another example where there might be some organizing that could be done, maybe. Um, but but I think in general, even though we, of course, we want to encourage the growth of unions and class struggle and all that stuff, I think in general, what we actually see now with neoliberalism and global financial integration is a situation where you have a, a polarization of options. Either you're going to have a continuation of neoliberalism because that's what capital wants, or you're going to have you, you have to confront it with a truly radical struggle for something different. I think that the middle ground, the effect of, of you know, four decades now of neoliberalism has been to basically polarize politics in this way. Either you have to be really radical and push for you know, truly substantial fundamental changes, or you are going to end up with more neoliberalism because that's just the way that the world market is set up and that's the pressures that are there. So, I mean, the number one thing that we should be talking about is capital controls. You know, that's the first way that we break uh, this capacity of capital to exit or to to really um, subvert any any attempts to to force them into these kinds of compromises. How we get there is a very difficult question. I mean, even breathing the words capital controls is is the death knell for most governments in the world or right. or aspiring uh, candidates for office. Um, even Corbyn and McDonald, uh, as we criticize them for in, in the Socialist Challenge today, could not mention capital controls. Right. Um, there's, there's an ideological challenge there too, which we need to be very serious about in order to prepare uh, a working class, a, a national populace for, let me rephrase this as a question. How do you prepare a national population, a particular working class to push for and accept and demand capital controls while avoiding the pitfalls entailed therein? i.e. most specifically nationalism. Yeah. How do you make an appeal to say that this capital is our fucking capital and yeah. you can't leave yeah. because we made it, we built it, it's ours. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. how do you how do you how do you um square that circle <laughs> yeah, of, of 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 preparing a population ideologically to demand uh, the ownership over our national capital and at the same time avoid the trap of, of nationalism, which we know has some really potentially ugly um, trajectories. Definitely. No, that, that is the real challenge. That's, that's the, the most difficult challenge, I think. I mean, even, even social democracy of any kind really has this kind of nationalism built into it too. Yeah. Um, in the sense of you know, who gets access to this is determined by this particular society. Uh, and, you know, when, when you start having kind of global Bretton Woods falling apart and that kind of thing, you know, these social democratic regimes had to adjust and try to reproduce those, those social democratic programs by basically producing high value added exports, right? And they could make the case to the capitalists in that country that, you know, our labor is, sure, you have to pay a lot of taxes and you have to pay high wages, but these high value added exports can cover all that ultimately and, and therefore serve as a base to reproduce these social democratic programs. Well, not everybody can do that. Not every country could do that. And it's fundamentally based on a global competition at the national level between nation states. 
And so I think for me, you know, obviously we don't want that as right. the as the final end goal. I think for me, this is gets back to something that Leo and Sam wrote in one of my favorite of their essays in 2000, um, Transcending Pessimism. Mm. Basically, you don't want to take competitiveness as your ultimate goal. Not national competitiveness, not, not competitiveness for your capital, not competitiveness for your firms. They're not your firms. You know, uh, GE is not our company. Mm-hmm. It's their company, the capitalist classes company. Mm. And I think the danger is always that these kinds of nationalist politics are always blurring that line. Like rather, for example, than saying that uh, attributing blame to the decline of the middle class and the, ero- the precarization of labor, et cetera, to American capitalists who have benefited from the restructuring of the world market over the past four decades to be able to invest abroad, including in China, Donald Trump says, China's doing it to us. It's not the capitalist class that's at fault. It's China. Mm. They're doing it to us. And us, I guess, includes like industrialists and, you know, whoever else, capitalists in, in the United States. So that I think is the problem. I think we have to, we maintain a class perspective. We maintain an internationalist perspective and, and we, 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 we insist that those are not our companies. We want to make them our companies. We want to make them our productive assets. We want to reclaim our productive capacities. And I think the best way of struggling for that is through projects like plant conversions, you know, from uh, making, say, automobiles. If, you know, capitalists wants to pull, uh, capital wants to pull out and leave a community destitute in Michigan or wherever um, because they don't want to make cars there anymore. Well, that community then should be organized to wage a struggle, to reclaim those productive capacities of that community and make things that aren't going to fuck up the environment. You know, rather than cars, make green technologies, you know, and we should be organizing this at a nation, at a national and international level so that as capital is, they're going to keep moving, they're going to keep closing plants. And as they are, we should really be thinking about how to, how to address this. So workers are everywhere are terrified that they're going to lose their jobs if they pick up their heads, if they ask for too much, you know, capital is going to leave. Well, okay, we need to find ways of decoupling the future of those workers in those communities from the decisions of multinational corporations. And I think this is not the ultimate end path to socialism, but it's a start toward building some community capacities and toward starting to re- starting to think about, you know, a, a path forward out of the current mess that we're in. Yeah, I've had a number of people come on and talk about this in a number of directions, you know, and you, there's even space in the Constitution, allegedly, according to, you know, Hamiltonian scholars who, who suggest that, we, you know, there's a public good uh, component that you could even over, you know, out, out, outpace um, sort of property protections, you know, in our in our broken constitutional republic. Uh, but the, the state could jump in and intervene and become a competitor, um, you know, in that in respect and, and backstop some of the these developments that you just talked about. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of room here. And I mean, the bottom line is we need to think, think very seriously and um, strategically about this. Um, I, I, like you, uh, even more profoundly, you um, inherited this, this approach from Leo Panich. And so, um, you know, I wanted to kind of uh, just return and closing here to, to, to you know, just kind of a uh, talk about Leo and his work and, and what he meant to both of us. Um, just one final pitch to the audience. Just again, is you're, you're leading off here. My, my series of episodes I'm doing to, to, you know, in, in, in essence, a tribute to his work, but also an extension of it. Cause I think that's what he would want. He would demand. In fact, as I said, off air, you know, one of my favorite anecdotes about Leo is that they had a, a conference at York university in his honor when he retired. 
And he got very upset and scolded everybody in attendance for talking too much about him rather than focusing on, you know, the project at hand. And so I, I think he'd probably uh, do the same now. So let's keep our eye on the project, but in, uh, you know, g- give a pitch for his work. What, what, uh, what should they read? How should they, they think through this and carry it forward in their lives? So, yeah, I mean, the making of global capitalism, which we actually didn't talk that much about, but but because it, it's not that directly related to the kind of political questions we were discussing, but mm-hmm. that is the most important work in the English language on global political economy today. Yeah, um, it's a landmark work uh, in the history of Marxist writing, mm-hmm. um, and it is certainly the most sophisticated and most well-worked-out analysis of the ways in which the American empire today is organized. Um, And there is all kinds of ways in which this book needs to be uh, reassessed, reread, looked at, built on uh, in terms of the rise of China. Uh, The question of, I mean, uh, one of the main theses of that book is that, you know, after World War II, inter-imperial rivalry between capitalist powers was replaced by a kind of condominium of states organized under the auspices of the American empire, uh, the extent to which that has broken down today uh, as Russia and China are increasingly assertive. Are they demanding uh, entry into the American empire on different terms? Are they trying to replace, supplant, or limit the American empire? Um, you know, These are all very serious questions with, with real implications for the direction of the world. Do they have the capacities to do that? I think what, you know, is a really critical question on Sam and Leo's writings about China in particular is like the U.S. did this in a very certain, very specific way with a a host of capacities, both domestically and internationally. Uh, Does Russia and China, do they possess those uh, capacities and do they have those kinds of aspirations or is it going to be grounded in an entirely different way? Um, Yeah. Yeah. People people sort of uh, overlook those things and just presume that any old hegemon can just jump in and the kind of um what was it our our, our friend uh Hannes locker uh says the the pez the pez dispenser theory of hegemonic success secession where one just kind of comes after the other quite magically and the other one pops up and yeah these are big questions big questions and that book i said in my eulogy i mean you you uh you outdid me steve so i'll i'll, I'll uh, jump in here as i think it's the most important book on state theory ever written and most people look to pulantis miliband debates or other kind of theoretical treatments of, or, you know, other anthologies or what have you, but, you know, forget all of that. This is a, this is state theory in practice. You know, they, they gloss state theory in the intro and then, and then spend a lot of time not talking about state theory for the rest of the book in a way that's exactly talking about state theory. If you, if you catch my drift, right. I mean, yeah. the whole thing is a demonstration. It's a case study and how uh, to, to uh, operationalize state theory, a certain kind of state theory. That's really idiosyncratic, I think to Leo and Sam's um, sort of uh, production there. But uh, yeah, I can't say enough about that book. I've been thinking for years about how to maybe do a reading series on it for the audience. Uh, if people out there in the audience have any ideas or have any aspirations or uh, towards doing that, I mean, you can break it down chapter by chapter and have you back on and have a number of people to talk about various chapters. I'd, I'd love to popularize and, and get that work out there. Um, but yeah, yeah I've, had, I've taken up enough of your time. You've been very, very <laughs> generous. Um, you're, yeah. you're writing and working and doing some skiing up there in, in BC. <laughs> it's yeah. my understanding when you have uh, some free time not to... Yeah. Uh, put the finishing touches on these books, but yeah. Uh, thanks again for coming to the show again. Um, thanks for catching up. Come back, you know, in the thanks, coming Adam. months when these books are, are no longer just uh, under contract, but, but forthcoming. Yeah. Steve, thanks, Mar, thanks again. Thank you. Nice to be here. 
And that concludes today's episode of DPS. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks to Steve Marr. Thanks again to Leo Panich, Papa Leo, uh, Uncle Leo, as they call him over there in the UK. I hope you guys aren't sick of hearing about him. He was an important man, but we're going to be talking more about his legacy in upcoming episodes of DPS. So tune in next week. Same time, same place. I'm going to be bringing you a B-side here for the patrons in the very near future. Um, I had originally promised a B-side that was recorded but never released because not only was it about the force-to-vote controversy and it was uh, not only behind schedule because of some health issues that I was having, but then the Capitol riot slash quasi-fascist clownish buffoonish takeover happened in D.C. and suddenly force-to-vote just doesn't seem like something that we want to talk about or discuss. But I assure you that I'm going to be recording a replacement B-side with Nick Kiersey to talk about the current conjuncture and kind of contextualize the force to vote controversy with what we're facing down, what we're looking down, the, how we're looking down the barrel today, right? I mean, we're looking at impeachment. It's, it's That's already happened. We're looking at a Biden administration. We're looking at a number of brand spanking new opportunities, possibilities, and challenges that have presented themselves since Nick and I first recorded that uh, force to vote episode. So um, we're going to update that. We're going to refresh it for the patrons. If you're not a patron, you're going to miss it. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. And you will get not only our entire back catalog of B-sides going back three and a half plus years ago, but uh, you'll get all of the future and upcoming B-sides as well. So thanks everybody for tuning in and we will see you all next time. Next time.